Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have someone really, really interesting. I think that we're going to be learning a lot about cap tables and how to keep them in place and also world structure. So without further ado, Henry Ward, how's it going? That's good. Thanks for having me, Alejandro. It's definitely a pleasure to have you. Henry Ward, CEO and founder of Carta. So why don't we do a little bit of a walk through memory lane here. So I see that you went to Michigan, and, and then after that, you actually did your, your business school, not in the U.S., but you went to France. Why did you do that? Uh, you know, I'd spent seven or eight years in Texas working for a handful of software companies um, and always had an interest in quantitative finance, uh, and I also was, was an avid cyclist, and so I thought I'd go to France to ride my bicycle and study, get a master's in, in financial um, uh, capital market finance. And so that's what I did. And then I worked in an investment bank for a short period of time uh, in Paris uh, and then moved to the Bay Area and then started um, started a couple of companies. Got it. So so what got you into, into those software companies? I mean, I see that the first one was a trilogy and then you did SAP. Is that right? Uh, yeah, so I worked at, um, I, I was recruited to Texas by Trilogy, which at the time was the Google that didn't become Google, but it was very hiring a lot of smart, young software developers to build really cool things, had that kind of early Google culture um, of innovation and trying many different things. Uh, and then I, I, a lot of com- a lot of companies were created out of tr- ex-Trilogy people. And so you'd have a trilogy founder go start another company, and I worked for several several companies of of trilogy of people that I'd worked with at Trilogy, and just followed them into their companies. And then naturally, sort of as my career progressed, I eventually got to start my own, and and then hire other former Trilogy people as well to come work in my company. Got it. So let's talk about this uh, first company and and you getting the entrepreneurial bug. So how did that happen? Uh, you know, my wife at the time, my ex-wife um, had moved to California uh, for her dream job, and I, I followed her here. And it was one of those things. I never actually planned to start a company. Uh, it was one of those things where, hey, if your wife gets a job in Hollywood um, and you took drama class in high school and you thought it might be fun to act again, you should audition just to try it out. And so I did, and I started a company called Second Sight, which was a 
earlier, less good version of Betterment or Wealthfront. It was, it was basically, I was building trading tools for investment bankers in Paris, and I wanted to build the same tools for my mom uh, and retail investors uh, and give them the same access to information that, that uh, investment bank traders had. Uh, that company completely died. It went nowhere. I couldn't even get the seed rounds uh, done. Um, but I spent a year and a half grinding away at it and walked away being depressed, but also say, thinking to myself, I couldn't imagine doing anything else now. And if I was, if I had that much fun as a failed entrepreneur, um, I can't imagine how much, it, how much fun it must be to me to be mildly successful. Uh, and so I decided I'd, I'd take another swing at it. And then that swing became, was eShares, now Carta. Um, and I'm so glad the first company died because this is a much better idea than that was. And, and, and let's, before we get into Carta, which, uh, which is an amazing story, I want to uh, dig deeper a little bit of, on this one on second sight. How, how did you come up with the, with the concept? Uh, I was, um, in my previous job, I was, um, build, we were, I was supporting fixed income traders that were um, constructing portfolios on fixed income debt. Uh, basically by country, country by country. And so this was actually just after the, the, the crisis. Uh, and so debt yields across Europe were, were all over the place. And there was a big business in creating, a, uh, in arbitraging between those yield curves uh, and then constructing a portfolio around them. And my job was to do the portfolio construction uh, algorithms, which really was basically how do you optimize a portfolio? And I was doing these portfolio optimization algorithms and tools uh, for these traders, and who were make, we were making tens of millions of dollars uh, on these portfolio optimization tweaks. And then my mom would call and say, "Hey, should I buy this municipal bond that a financial advisor called and told me I should buy?" And it was just the discrepancy between the haves, the bankers that have uh, people like me to build tools for them, and then the the moms and pops that are trying to manage their four one k. The discrepancy in tools and informa- information is so wide. And so I wanted to democratize that um, information and, and, and software to retail investors. And that's what I built. Uh, and I went to market with it. But this was, this was in 2011, where fintech was really, 2011-12, fintech was really not a thing in Silicon Valley. Fintech was, was payments that nobody understood or was interested in capital market um, uh, software, uh, financial software. And so I couldn't get that that even Wealthfront and Betterment really struggled in the early days until they established the category of robo-advisors and they were just much better at it than I was. And, and at this one, uh, at this first attempt, were you uh, the solo co-founder or did you have other people? Uh, I was the solo founder. Just started the, so, the solo founder, got it. So, and then did you have like, a, like, were, like, was it just like yourself doing this? Did you get a team or, or, or what was the progression of the business? Uh, it was just myself starting it, and then I hired um, uh, contractors off of uh, Odesk, uh, and, and I think it was Elance, uh, to help me. Um, and the, But the team never got larger than maybe four or five of us. And it was all personally funded uh, in the early days till I tried to go out and raise capital, uh, and I couldn't. And look, I think that uh, the fact that you were at it for a year and nine months is a it's amazing because there's people that are at it for years and years and years until they finally are able to 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 really pull the plug. So so I guess for you um, and and you know this led to a massive success, which we're going to talk about it in just in just a minute here. But 
but I guess for you, like what, what was that moment where you said, you know what, I think it's, it's time to pull the plug on this. Um, one of the investors that I was working on with the company who wanted to invest and gave me a term sheet, but, but basically I had to, uh, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like I, I could raise, you know, $750,000 that he would put in $500,000 of it. Um, but I had to go get the other hundred, 250 K to, um, to close. And I remember being very excited. And, and this investor is a great, Menu is a great investor. But he said to me, I don't know anything about this idea. I don't know anything about finance. It actually sounds like a terrible idea to me, but I like you. And so I'm going to bet on you. Um, but you have to go, you have to be able to find other investors that will bet on the idea uh, in order to close. And it was when I went through that process, I couldn't find anybody else who would bet on the idea. Um, and the only person I, I could find who would bet on it was just betting on me saying, I don't, I don't really like this idea, but I'm, I'm going to give you some leash some runway to try it. Um, I still wasn't ready to, to fold when I couldn't get that round done. I said, look, I'm going to give myself three more months at it. There's a couple of things I want to try to achieve. And if I can't achieve those, then I'll pull the plug. Uh, and that's what allowed me to pull the plug was when I really set it up for myself that if I can't do these things, then, then I, I know I can't get this done. And what were those things? Um, I had to get um, uh, some amount of usage so one was I had to get the round closed and I couldn't. So that really kicked us off. And then I had to get some level of usage with uh, a couple of partners that I was I was trying to get to buy in on the product. Uh, and if I couldn't get these partners to close and just and and you know tell me they were going to use the product, then I I felt I was just spinning wheels now, just building product for the sake of building product. Yeah, yeah. So so then, uh, what what was that day where where you finally pulled the plug? I mean, I, I think that entrepreneurship is tough. But uh, ultimately, from from failures is where you really learn. Um, so, so what was that you know day like when when this finally folded, and and what lessons do you take away with you? Uh, it was certainly um, depressing and hard. There was also a sense of relief too, because uh, I was grinding so hard at it for so long, with certainly a year and a half, you know, plus without seeming to get anywhere. There's a little bit of this relief of, well, hey, you know, at least um, at least I know that it's not going to work versus I still don't know. Uh, but it was very hard. And it, it, I decided afterwards I was going to take three months and just do some contract work, just try to feel productive. Uh, even if I wasn't even though I was productive the last year and a half, I didn't really have much to show for it. So at least if I worked for somebody else <laughs> as a contractor, I could build things for them and they would get value out of it, even though nobody got value out of the, the previous you know year and a half of my life. Um, so I did that for about three or four months um, to trying to figure out what to do next. And it was over that three or four months that I just realized I, I had to try another company again. I, I just, the idea of going and working for a, somebody else, for a company, walking into somebody else's company, just like, I couldn't imagine anymore. Not that it was a terrible thing. It just, um, I just missed so much of the excitement of um, controlling your own destiny. You know, you, you live and die, you, you hunt your own food, you live and die by the decisions you make. You know, the market is compassionless. There, there is no A for effort um, uh, given by the market. Um, and so it's hard, but that's what makes it exciting is, is you live entirely by your own, by your own wits. And once you have that, bug of living by your own wits, it's really hard to go back to um, safety and security. 
Absolutely. But during this, let's say like this three or four months where you were doing like contract work and, and you were pulling yourself together again from from having this experience, was there like a breakthrough moment that you had where you were like, look, I, I had a first attempt at it and and but it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm going to try it again. Um, I think the, the breakthrough moment was the investor that I had worked with on the previous company that, that, that failed. I had kept in touch with him and he had this idea. He said, hey, you know, Henry, there's, an, there's, this, there's an idea I have that I would love a company to be built around. And, um, and so I caught up with him. You know, we kept in touch after I closed the business and I caught up with him over lunch and he pitched me this idea. Uh, and it got and this, me is Manu? this is Manu this is Kumar? Manu. Okay, yep, got it. Kumar. And he pitched me this idea, and at first it didn't. I didn't get excited about it. Um, over time, as over the over the couple months um, that I continued to think about it and talk with him about it, it became more and more exciting because it, it initially appeared to be kind of a legal workflow document automation idea, but really underneath the hood, it was a financial infrastructure idea, which is which is what I love is financial infrastructure, and. Um, once I saw that as a financial infrastructure company and a, pro and a problem, that's when I got, it, it became less a, I don't want to go work for another company. Uh, it became a, I want to go build this company. And that was the flip of the switch was when I realized what this idea meant. Uh, and then I got, and then I dug back in. Uh, and what was great about doing it on a second run is I had learned so much in the first run, um, spending a year and a half failing that I, I felt like to some extent, I kind of got all the failures out of the way. Uh, and so I knew what not to do uh, in the first 18 months of this company. So then let's talk about that just one second. So what were the top three things that you knew you were not going to do this time around? Yeah, so so first was um, I needed help. I wasn't the, I didn't know how to build product well, and I really needed to learn how to build product well. And I, so I surrounded myself with other product founders that were very good at product. Manu was very good at product. And so for, for me, um, I knew the skill set that I was missing out of the first one was product. And I, I spent the next, you know, first two years of, of eShares, Carta, learning how to build product. And, and I, I think now I am a very good product builder, um, but it took a lot of discipline uh, and self-teaching uh, to do that. Um, the second one is to really understand what product market fit looks like and how to make it happen. So the first company, I sort of built this product in, in imagination and, and then just sort of went to the market and said, hey, here it is. Somebody should want this. Um, I really adopted uh, lean, lean, iterative product development where we, we, you know, I was talking to customers before we even started writing code and going to customers, showing them what we're doing, coming back, you know, redoing products, going back to customers and really tightening that loop um, up quickly. And then the third one is um, uh, I understood much better now how to talk to investors. Uh, you know, talking to investors is a sales um, job and understanding what they're looking for, how they think about making investments, and then matching up the product strategy and, and business to what investors are looking for. Um, to finding, you know, um, investor market fit, right, and 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 company market fit for investors. Uh, and I think, you know, the fundraising process for entrepreneurs it's a gauntlet. It's a it's a boot camp. It's trial by fire. But I think it is the 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 
the that period of time that entrepreneurs are are raising capital, it's they're it's when they learn the most, and it's part of I think the necessary um, training that an entrepreneur has to go through um, to be successful is that is that uh, fundraising process. It's like the boot camp of of entrepreneurship. It makes sense. It makes sense, and definitely a good opportunity to cover some of the holes that maybe as a founder you're not you're not seeing. So Henry. When you kind of like uh, were in discussions with Menu and and then all of a sudden, like walk us through how were these days where you kind of like took the idea, started taking it seriously, and what was that incubation process until you actually pulled the trigger on this? Um, so I would go back and forth with Menu on on you know how he thought about the idea, how I thought about the idea, and Menu was great in the sense that he gave me the nugget uh, of the idea of hey, you know what is it. Why do we have these paper stock certificates in the private world, but they don't exist in the public world? Um, um, and then, and then I took that and really looked at how public market infrastructure works, and thought deeply about how to apply that into the private world. And so, when the idea became exciting, was Menu wanted the problem of paper stock certificates solved. That was his itch, um, and uh, but didn't have a didn't have a great view on how that problem gets fixed. Uh, and then my view was, okay, that paper certificate problem is a symptom of an underlying problem, which is that there is no financial infrastructure in the private world. And so I have this idea of how to fix it. And Manu was great at, at, at saying, oh, that sounds, that sounds great, right? Like, um, that is a great way to look at solving this problem. I was like, this is a great problem for me to solve <laughs> with the way that I want to solve problems. Uh, and so once we had sort of this plan, we really said, here's the product that we, we can go to market with that we think will will start solving this problem. And if we were to solve this problem um, uh, at, at maturity, so at scale, this problem, we can, we can remove paper stock certificates from the, from the world um, with this product, what would the world look like uh, in, that, in that new era? And we could imagine both of those things really well And that was enough to go, let's pull the trigger. And then the hard part of the company or the, the, the thing that we just have to figure out, and this is what company building is, how do you get from point A to point Z? Uh, and that's the unknown. Right, right. So then, so then once you pulled the trigger, what were some of those early days like? I didn't code. It was a lot of recruiting uh, and it was a lot of talking to customers. So, you know, I would say, um, uh, you know, two thirds of my time was, um, Uh, or three quarters of my time was building product uh, uh, and recruiting people to help me build product. And then a quarter was talking to customers and it was just going back and forth every day, every week, building new stuff, talking to customers, trying to get them to use it uh, and then going back uh, and building more stuff. And what were like the, um, let's say the first couple of critical hires that, that you onboarded for the business? Um, I, the, the two critical hires were, um, or I would say three, it was Josh who became our head of product. Uh, and he had, came from a design background, Kyle, who was our first engineer and Jared, who was our second engineer. And once we got those three plus me, um, working on the product, that's where we really started to get lift off. And that's where the product started to really work. Um, uh, we got people to use it. Then we had our fourth engineer, Eric, uh, who joined, who, who was, one of the best engineers I've ever worked with, who then really moved us into the, hey, we now have this kind of product that people get to use to product that people get to pay for. And I remember the first payment we took, it, it took us, 
you know, a month. This is Stripe had just kind of released their API. You know, we're trying to get Stripe working so we can take our first credit cards. Uh, and then this was this was when we officially launched um, in January 2014. The team worked the entire uh, Christmas break uh, trying to get payments working so that we could take our first payments and uh, and the website and the and the, the, the sign up flow. And I remember um, uh, January 10th, uh, um, a company in Austin, Texas, uh, uh, um, uh, paid us $120 to issue their first uh, five stock certificates, or I think nice. six stock certificates. And uh, yeah, it was amazing. We, we were all crossing our fingers watching the Stripe output log to see if, if we'd actually get paid or not. Wow, that's really cool. And, and I guess as, as you were like building then the business, what were some of like the main challenges that you were experienced with with um, a structure like this? Um, you know, one of the things that we did, which is maybe a little bit unique for us, was um, I, I felt very strongly in these small teams we had to work very closely together. And so, and we had a lot of young young engineers. Our first engineer was straight out of college, um, and so we we actually started doing every morning. At 8, 8 a.m., uh, everybody had to be in the office, and we would sit down and do, uh, or I'm sorry, I think it was 8.30. 8.30 a.m., we'd sit down and do, um, uh, a, people call it a stand-up. We call it a show-and-tell, where every morning we'd come in for an hour, and everybody would show what they were working on. And I would cr critique and give product feedback, and other people would, would provide feedback. That 8.30 a.m. meeting to 9.30 often would People wouldn't leave till noon because we'd find issues. We'd work on them together. We probably everybody had desks, but we probably spent more than half our day in a conference room with the entire company, which was you know seven or eight of us. Um, and all we would do is work side by side because as things needed to get fixed or things needed to get built, you could just look at the person next to you and do it. And I just remember those days as extremely intimate. Everybody was just crowded into a conference room working uh, together. Uh, in real time. And we would meet every morning at 8 a.m. to start the day together. Um, and that that's permeated for many years. We don't do it every day now um, at, you know, 500 people, but we still have our weekly show and tell on Wednesday mornings where the entire company logs in and people get to show what they're working on. Wow. 500 people. That's uh, you guys have come a long, long way. And all 500 people there in, in the Bay Area or where are they located? Uh, we have seven offices. Um, so we have San Francisco, uh, Palo Alto, Seattle, Salt Lake, New York, New Jersey, uh, and Rio uh, de Janeiro in Brazil. And why Rio de Janeiro? Um, we, I was looking um, about 15 people. We, we realized we just had a hard time. I had a hard time raising money for this business. It's a tough, scrappy business. And so I was uh, having a hard time competing for engineers in the Bay Area. And so I wanted to go offshore. I wanted to go somewhere else where I'd, I'd have um, a competitive edge. Uh, I didn't want to go. I wanted to stay within the same time zone or pretty close. So I looked um, all over Central and South America. I, I looked in Mexico, Argentina, you know, Peru, Ecuador, Colombia. And it just so happened that Brazil, for some government reasons, um, uh, has a deep, deep, uh, bench of great Python and Ruby engineers. Uh, the, the, the government had taxed out proprietary software in the, in the 2000s. They taxed .NET out of the country. And so all of the, the um, universities taught open source. 
Most of the government uh, uh, information systems were run on open source. And so there was this great open source culture and training uh, of engineers in Brazil. And so once I found that out, we invested heavily uh, in Brazil. And we now have 50, 50 engineers in Brazil today. And we've probably moved 30 or 40 engineers out of Brazil into the United States who wanted to come up here. That's a great strategy. And, and I guess looking back now, Henry, was there like, a, and you've come a long way. I mean, where you guys are at is, is remarkable what you have accomplished. But I guess looking back, I, we all know as founders that the highs are high and the lows are lows. Was there, for example, with you guys, a moment where you were like very concerned? Like maybe there were, you didn't know if there was going to be a tomorrow? Yeah, uh, certainly. Um, the, the, especially in the early days, there was uh, always the, the threat of, um, you know, we were a couple um, a week away from missing payroll on the balance sheet. Um, uh, uh, you know, there were times where we, we had a database breach, which we thought would bring us down. There's all these episodes along the way. And even now when, you know, you're big, you think, you know, well, we're, we're very um, nothing, you know, terrible can happen to us. But the history is littered with companies that even when they were doing well, suddenly things, things went south. And you just don't know when something really bad happens, you know, what's going to happen. Uh, it's part of the excitement of, of, of um, uh, being an entrepreneur, but, but it also, it's the uncertainty. Um, uh, and I think that's when I go back to, I think fundraising is one of these um, uh, exercises that's so important for an entrepreneur to go through because it's, it's so hard and it's so difficult uh, uh, difficult to get people to invest. You hear so many no's and it seems almost uh, impossible uh, for a lot of companies, especially for my company uh, in the early days to raise capital. You just develop this sort of overconfidence that you keep grinding away and things will work out. And I think that's the missing ingredient from a lot of uh, founders is the persistence, um, uh, the keep keeping going even when things uh, aren't going your way. That, that can go to a fault, right? I have met founders where persistence goes to stubbornness. And I think a lot of the art is knowing uh, which is which. I, I agree. I think that combining persistence, but then also with listening of why, why are people saying no? Because in my mind, I think that no is a request for further information to address certain concerns. And it's just all in the, in the follow-up. So I guess in your case, uh, Henry, how many times did you hear the word no from investors? Oh gosh, on the seed round, um, oh, if you look at every angel investor, probably sixty to seventy. And on the Series A, I hit thirty venture funds uh, before I got uh, um, my first term sheet. Uh, thirty venture funds said no. Um, so I, I the early, and then if you look at my first company, um, you know, I've I've probably had a couple hundred no's uh, before I got my first uh, yes. Wow. Wow. So I'm sure that you learned a lot. And, and, and walk us through the fundraising experience with, uh, with Carta, because I, I believe you guys uh, raised money quite early no, in the, in the life cycle of the business. Yeah. So we raised uh, our seed round, um, uh, which got us going uh, 1.8 million. Uh, and that was just a seed um, and angels. There was no, there was no significant institutional money in there. It was really an angel party round. Uh, and that was in, summer of 2013 um we launched the product in january of 2014 and then we started getting enough traction 
uh, we went from January uh, 2014. We we're making about a hundred. We made I think uh, seven hundred dollars that month. I think I, I told you the story about the first hundred and forty bucks. Um, and then uh, by July, by August through September, we were making about fifty thousand dollars a month. So we went wow. from you know seven hundred dollars to fifty thousand dollars a month in in six or nine months, uh, and then that allowed us to raise the Series A, which still was very difficult for me to do. And the biggest mark, the biggest reason investors said no on the West Coast was they said, Henry, you know, it's cap tables. How big a market can cap tables be? I remember one investor saying, he said, you know, Henry, we like to invest in things where um, there's line of sight to a billion dollars in revenue. So they were an investor in MongoDB. And so they said, look, you know, MongoDB, you build a better, better database. All you have to do is prove you have a better database and you can sell a database up into a billion dollars of revenue plus that you have line of sight. There's no line of sight for you on cap tables. There's no billion dollar market on cap tables. Uh, and so that's why we, we don't like investing in companies like yours. And so that's why Series A was really hard, even though we were we were clearly getting some traction. Nobody believed that this could be a big business. They all called it a lifestyle business. Um, it wasn't until we went to New York that I, I met with three funds in New York and all three gave me a, a term sheet. Uh, and that's one of the lessons I learned in the fundraising process that I think a lot of entrepreneurs feel like their, their job is to convince an investor that they uh, uh, should invest. And I, uh, I think it's actually um, more, your job is to find investors that get excited about your idea. And if an investor isn't excited about your idea you're not going to be able to convince them, or I, I wouldn't even say it's been worth trying to, especially at the early stage. Um, what you want to do, fi uh, finding investors is really a filtering exercise versus a convincing exercise. And the mistake I made in the Series A was I spent all this time trying to convince uh, Sand Hill Road investors that they should be interested in a capital market, you know, um, uh, business. Um, where what I really should have just done is gone to New York because once I explained. Uh, the business in New York, everybody there got it because they understood capital market infrastructure. Uh, and it was much easier once I was on the East Coast. And this is the uh, round that was led by Union Square Ventures? That's right. Really, really cool. So then, so then I believe that um, right that year, something really interesting is that within literally months, you went from your A round to your B round. Why so quickly? Typically, people like raise money for like 18 to 24 months. Yeah, this is... Um, uh, one of the clever things that, that I think both of us did, me and Andrew, Andrew was the investor that led the B. So in the Series A, um, uh, Union Square and Spark Capital, where Andrew was, uh, were the two funds that were interested in investing. I ended up going with Union Square Ventures, but I really liked Andrew. And I said, hey, well, why don't you just stay involved? Uh, you know, we're raising $7 million dollars why don't you put in 500K and, and just get to know us better? And you're, you are welcome to come to my board meetings as my guest and just hang out and, and learn about us. And he, he, he was very gracious and invested 500K and, and came to the board meetings and, and got to know the team and hung out at the office. And so I remember, I think it was in the April or May, maybe the May board meeting, um, I was you know walking through our metrics and numbers and I said, look, I think I'm going to need more money pretty soon. Um, uh, you know, it's just we're, we're growing faster than expected and, and I need to hire more. And 
Um, and that was it. And Andrew called me a couple of days later and said, Hey, you remember how you said you might need some more money soon? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, I have some, um, if you'd like it. And he offered me a term sheet. Uh, I think it was on a Friday. Um, and then by Saturday, uh, Saturday night, we had signed it and, and closed the following week. Um, so, so is the fastest, that's, that's the fastest, easiest round I've ever raised. That's really cool. And that was a spark capital. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, really cool. So, so now in total, how much, how much capital have you guys raised? Uh, in total, we've raised about 150 million. 150. And the last one was the series D from December, 2018, right? Yes. Actually, I'm sorry, about 200. Yeah. About, um, uh, yeah, sorry, about 150 million. The last one was a Series D at 80, uh, Series D, 80 million dollars. Yeah, got it. And and I mean, the investors, just for the listeners, I mean, you have SB Angel, DFJ, Menlo, Kima Ventures, Spark, Union Square Ventures. Uh, you have Draper as well. I mean, Anthemis Group is like the who is who. So I mean, what was typically the uh, from your experience, like really getting those investors in? I think that getting into their circle of trust is critical because early stage investing and, and investing in privately held companies is all about trusting whoever is, is leading the charge. So what were the most effective, let's say, introductions that you got and, and, and what was the process to, to build that trust? You know, in the early days, um, having angel investors that are passionate uh, and, and get excited about your company, they'll, they'll, um, they'll help syndicate and they'll help pull in their their friends and people that they co-invest with once you once you get into the in institutional rounds once you have a um you know union square ventures a spark a menlo um a meritech once you have an institutional lead that's in and the company's doing well the rest of that stuff uh, just gets completely filled out um it, it's one of these things i think entrepreneurs who raise capital should should realize it's um uh, it, it, fundraising is hard, 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 hard. And then suddenly once you get uh, a lead investor, it gets very, very easy uh, because it hits this tipping point where once somebody else uh, jumps in, everybody else wants to jump in after. The, the, the reason is that it, it, it makes total sense. It's, it's a game theory problem. Um, if you, you're an investor, the last dollar in is the safest dollar into a round because you have the most information, right? Before anyone invests, everybody has the same information about the company. They, they don't, they're, they're trying to evaluate the company. But once an investor comes in and says, hey, I'm in for $10 million, now everybody else knows that this company will have $10 million, which makes the company more valuable and, and de-risks it, de-risks it because the, they, know, they know that the company has $10 million. And they also know that this investor has some conviction around it and may know something the others don't. Then they can call that investor and find out. And so what happens is once you get the first check, every check, subsequent check becomes easier. Once you get the second check, the third check's easier. <laughs> once you get the third, the fourth is. And there's this trickle effect. And so what happens, like in my seed round, it took me three or four months to get the first check, uh, the first um, or 500K in. Uh, and then the last 500K took me about five days. Uh, it wow. just accelerates really quickly. And so, you know, once you get the first uh, investor in, uh, the rest of it, the, you don't even need introductions. Everyone just starts calling you and saying, yeah. can, I, can I invest now? <laughs> I, I, I heard Maritech <laughs> is amazing. investing. Can I, can I invest too? And as a founder, you always want to be like, 
well, where were you before Maritech showed up? <laughs> yeah. Like why? Um, I uh, hear that's you. always the, the game to play. Yeah. yeah, I always tell founders that, unfortunately, the way this works is that for investors, time is their best friend and for founders, time is their worst enemy. Because for the founder, obviously, you're always about runaway, while for the investor, you're always about execution and time is going to give you more access to that. So I, I, I fully agree, you know, as well on, on what you're saying, Henry. So so I guess, uh, if, for example, like in, in this case, what I wanted to ask you is, was there, let's say, like a time? Uh, where you actually were like, I think we're into something really big here. I think when we went to the Series uh, D, I think when we went to the Series C, we knew we had a good software business that was growing. I think we went to the Series D, we started believing we had something really special. Uh, uh, it went from a good software, you know, B2B SaaS business to an, a business that could be an outlier uh, business that has a, has the potential to be uh, one of this decade's generational companies. Um, uh, and I think that happened in the last 12, 12 months. Got it. And, and one of the things that you, I mean, we're talking about challenges earlier, but one of the biggest challenges is, is rebranding. I mean, I, I remember when you guys were called eShare. So what really triggered the change of name from from eShares to to Carta, and what was the big challenge there on doing the rebrand? Sure. So it was two things. So the first thing was a very practical one. Uh, we had eSharesInc.com, and eShares.com was being held by a squatter. Uh, that was every time we asked to buy it, he would raise the price, uh, and he was doing pretty pretty awful things like putting. Uh, a copy or, or making his website on eShares.com look like our website so that people would get confused and things like that uh, to try to force our hand. And so we, we realized we were negotiating with terrorists because at first he would say it was $200,000 when we didn't have that much money. And then we'd raise money and he'd see the news and there'd be a million dollars and then it would be $10 million. So we, we knew we would never really be able to buy it reasonably from him. Right. So that forced us to change the name um, uh, and then, but the other thing was, we also realized as the company was growing, that we were outgrowing the name eShares, that we felt we had much more, we, there was much more in our roadmap beyond just electronic shares. Uh, and so we decided we wanted to search for a, a more emotive name, a name that could cover more, um, more territory, more area for us. Uh, and so we did a full, we hired a naming consultant, a, a, an inexpensive one, but she was great. And we did an, a whole branding exercise to try to figure out what what our company, um, what our company values are, what our brand is, and that would inform the names that we we would choose. And so our naming consultant gave us a bunch of names. We had all our employees submit names, and then we would go through this branding exercise and start filtering out names. So we got to a core ten names that we felt fit into our brand, and then um, uh, then we we had employees vote, uh, and then the board vote. And then um, uh, a small group of, of me and the early you know, employees vote. And what was exciting about it was of all the hundreds of names that were available uh, to us, all three groups independently picked Carta as the name. Uh, everybody picked Carta without knowing what the other people were doing. It was completely independent. And, and then we looked at Carta and it was the, it was a domain that we could actually buy. Um, and I think we paid a hundred K for it or something. 
and so so it just it became destiny and and cardo cardo became our name so we got very lucky uh and how all of that worked it was it was actually a really great exercise for us and what a and what a great name i love uh i love the name carta so so i guess you've you guys are the leaders when it comes to to managing cap tables so i think that cap tables is one of the biggest things because i remember reed hoffman said that whenever you're raising money you need to always focus on how your next round is going to be like and getting someone in your cap table you know it's it's just going to be harder to divorce them than to divorcing your husband or wife so what what have you, what are like some of the biggest lessons that you've learned on cap tables that perhaps you can share with our listeners um i think well so i think there's one administrative thing it's usually cap tables are wrong which is why, which is why we created this company uh to make that uh, uh go away the the other thing about um uh cap tables is i think they're uh they're very asymmetrical information you know i think investors know a lot about cap tables how cap tables work I think early founders don't. And so there's no sense of, hey, what's a reasonable price? How much dilution should I um, take for a certain amount of money, right? What, what are the rights and preferences that go along with this cap table? What is it, you know, if I'm giving uh, away part of this cap table, does that mean they get information rights? Does it, does it mean they get uh, board um, rights to be on the board? So there's a lot of intricacies around these transactions that affect cap tables that I think a lot of Uh, early founders, including myself, don't don't completely understand. Unfortunately, not all investors are the most transparent and and open about explaining that. Uh, as uh, also, and that's why we, and the lawyers get involved and create all these non-standard terms too, which make it even even more complicated. So I think there's a lot of um, uh, nuance and and structure that fits around these cap tables that are poorly understood. And then the last one is I think there's also this information asymmetry between employees um, and and the cap table where I can see and look at employees across, just like I can look at the entire payroll file, I can also look at across and at all of the option grants across employees. Um, but an, an employee or a, a prospect, a candidate that's coming to work here has no information about you know what's a good option grant to offer or not. It's very hard to get market information on that. Um, so I think you know, one of the challenges around the cap table is it, it is so important for, for companies that do well, it is the difference, difference between a, you know, 20% uh, change in uh, somebody's salary might be 10 or 20 or $30,000. Uh, but the difference in a 20% change in the option grant um, could be millions for the right company. And so I think there's this, um, this unfortunate um, way that employees don't really understand how their equity Uh, uh, works and what comparables should be. Um, and so really have a hard time valuing it. Got it. And, and I guess the um, one thing that, you know, that I was present to when, when you were explaining this is in terms of management of equity, like what's typically the most common mistake that you see founders making? Uh, well, the number one mistake we find is that uh, founders forget that they issued a convertible debt. So they literally just don't record it. And then when it converts, they forget about this liability and it comes back later uh, to bite them. Uh, the other mistake is when they do, when they do convert convertible notes, the um, uh, calculation of the conversion price is often wrong, uh, which makes their liquidation preference and waterfall um, uh, go wrong. So, so most of the mistakes we see are in the debt to equity uh, conversions. Um, we also see where 
this is less a mistake, but I think founders just aren't well tuned into it is some of the not best investors will put in extra preferences like participation rights or, or uh, dividends, things like that, that founders just don't understand or know about. And I think that, um, that that's not a mistake as much as uh, sometimes founders are taking advantage of that way. Right, right. And, and, and I guess one of the things that I wanted to, um, to ask you here is, is one question that I always ask our guests. And, and I mean, you've, you've done it all. I mean, you, you, you've been in a company that, that worked, a, a company that didn't work, and you've obviously done the, the, you know, almost the full cycle. I mean, the last thing obviously pending is the, is the exit on this one, but, but you've, you've done it pretty much everything here. So, so if you had, knowing what you know now, if you had to, let's say, have the chance to, to give yourself, your younger self, one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why? Uh, I would spend a lot more time thinking about and vetting an idea before jumping into it. Uh, but then once I did jump into it, uh, once I did all of the upfront homework to decide if this is the right idea, um, to go in with lots of conviction. Got it. And in the process of vetting any, any type of, uh, of tips, uh, I think you have to spend a lot of time, um, talking to customers or potential customers uh, and also talking to investors and really starting to define and refine the, the business model, the customer acquisition strategy, the business model, uh, the defensibility, the network effect, right? What are the, you know, I have my five things that, that have to be true. Uh, and I do this today because we launch new products all the time. And so I have my five, my checklist of five things uh, that we have to have conviction around um, before we go um, uh, launch this new product into a new market. Um, and we do a lot of the upfront homework. And then once we we agree, hey, this is we have a lot of conviction about this, we really put some muscle behind it. Uh, because even great ideas uh, can take a lot of effort to get off the ground. Right. And, and, and I guess uh, talking about Carta, uh, what I wanted to ask you also is what does what does the world look like when the vision, let's say, uh, in some years from now of, uh, of Carta is fully realized? I think there will not be a real a significant difference between being private and public, that there won't be this arbitrary IPO line where you have zero liquidity as a private company and uh, com- you know, hyper liquidity as a public company. I think the, the line between private and public will, will blur. And I think uh, more and more retail investors will have access to private companies that they don't have access to today. I love it. I love it. So Henry, what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? Oh, uh, my Twitter handle is at Henry S. Ward. Amazing. Well, Henry, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.